Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. So we're going to look at Genesis 25, and we're going to look at verses 19 through 34. 19 through 34. In the case of Esau, Esau's name means hairy, and we'll talk about how furry he actually was. Um, in the case of Esau, he is a man that is talked about in Scripture as a man of the flesh. He's a man that did not seem to care much about spiritual things. And in many ways, he seemed to be kind of a man's man. You know, he was a hunter. He was that kind of dude. He liked to hunt and fish. And, you know, he was maybe that prototypical man that we can think of. Uh, One commentator I was reading this week called him the ancient mountain man. That's Esau. And then you have Jacob, and, and sometimes when think, people think of Jacob, they think of Jacob as this kind of just mild-mannered, conniving kind of dude, kind of soft, like the cook, you know, that kind of thing. And sometimes we get this idea that if you like to cook, you're not a man. If, if, you, uh, if you don't like to hunt, then maybe you're not a man. Look, I like to cook. I don't hunt the things before I cook them. <laughs> I buy them in the store. But look, there's, there's a wider definition of masculinity that I think our world doesn't recognize. And so we have a lot of young people that are getting in trouble because they don't f- feel like they fit into this mold of what a man is supposed to be. So there's people in our world today that are telling them, oh, if you don't fit into that mold, then maybe you, maybe you like guys. No. We don't have to say just because you don't fit into a so-called mold, there's something wrong with you. And the contrast between uh, Jacob and Esau couldn't be wider, and yet they were both, uh, we could call them both uh, man's men, but they were just different. So the the problem was the flesh. There's three things that in 1 John 2, 16 and 17 that we wrestle with, and we wrestle with the lust of the, the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. All of us wrestle with those things. Some categories are more difficult for some of us than others of us, but we're all going to wrestle with what the Bible calls the flesh. Now, when you hear that, that's a Greek word called sarx. If you're interested in Greek words, it's S-A-R-X. That's the word for flesh. And the flesh speaks, I can give you three definitions, but just for our time's sake, the flesh speaks of the remaining unredeemed humanity that still lingers in you. You're saved, but you haven't arrived yet, so you still deal with the flesh. Romans 7, Paul said, there's nothing good dwells in my flesh. Jesus said in Matthew to the uh, apostles, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? We all deal with the flesh. In fact, Galatians 5 tells us that the flesh uh, wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and the two are contrary one to another. And the question is, what dominates you the most? You know, godliness is a God-dominated life. That's how you could define godliness. Godliness is a God-dominated life. But Esau was called godless. And, you know, that's a sad description of a man. In fact, in the story of Jacob and Esau, um, 
to my knowledge, Jacob is not condemned for how he connived his brother. It's Esau who is condemned in Scripture. He's called a godless man. He's called a man that despised his birthright. And we, uh, as Christians, we are going to wrestle with this thing called the flesh. In Romans 13, we are told we are to, no, to make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. We're to make no provision. The word in Romans 13 for provision, it means forethought or supply. We are not to give any forethought to supplying our flesh for the next indulgence. We're not to do that. We're not to put things in our life, things in place that we've kind of set up so that we can just indulge our flesh over and over and over again. The Bible says if you do that, you're just fooling yourself. You're just playing a game. We need to know we are still susceptible to sin as Christians, and Esau becomes kind of a, a type, a face to put to how not to do this. And there's a right way to do it, and there's a wrong way to do it. This is uh, Genesis 25, and pick it up with me at verse 19. Genesis 25, verse 19. Now, these are the records of the generations of Isaac. Uh, many times, these, the phrase, the records of the generations, is a Hebrew word called toledots, and it's used 10 times for the primeval history in Genesis, Genesis 5, 1, 6, 9, 10, 1. And it's used for the patriarchs. These are the generations. This is kind of the record of these peoples. The generations of Isaac, he's the son of promise. He's Abraham's son, notice. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, or another way to say this is he was Syrian, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Just in case you wondered, there were still Semitic people groups, so they did intermarry within the right line, but they were just from a different region. So remember, there was a very careful process to go and find the wife, and Abraham made the servant of the Lord, or the servant in his household, swear to him, and he grabbed his thigh. Remember that? And that was swearing on your future children and grandchildren, on your posterity, on your manhood, if you will. And he said, you are to find a wife for my son from among my peoples, and off he went, and God guided that process, remember? And God, you know, he threw out something. He said, Lord, if this happens and I'll know she's the one and he found Rebecca and Rebecca was willing to give his him a drink and and even give his 10 camels a drink talk about an enterprising lady right probably took her two hours to get water for all those camels to go down into the well and come back up and she was a strong woman and so she took care of it, and uh, there was a moment of decision that came. She was uh, asked this question, will you go with this man? And she had never seen them before. And Rebecca becomes a type of the Christian. Even though we haven't seen Jesus, we what? We love him. And we know that he's waiting to receive us to himself, that where he is there, we may be also. And so Rebecca was sent off. If you go back to chapter 24, Look at verse 58, 24, 58. They called Rebekah, the family did, and said to her, will you go with this man? That's a, that's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Will we follow Jesus Christ? 24, 58, will you go with this man? And he said, or excuse me, she said, I will go. Thus they sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. 
And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, may you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. And Rebekah, 2461, arose with her maids. They mounted the camels and followed the man. And so the servant took Rebekah and departed. And so now we see that Rebekah leaves her homeland. She decides to follow sight unseen, and she goes to marry Isaac. And the prophecy that's spoken over her by her family is, may you be thousands and ten thousands. And Isaac already has the promise from Genesis 22 that in Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed and many nations will come from the loins of Abraham. And Isaac knows the story. And so Isaac was 40 years old back in 2520. He was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. That seems a little older, but that's what he was, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean. And so he gets married at this time and Rebekah may be younger. We don't know for sure what her age was. But I want you to notice that something happens next. It says in verse 21 of 25, and Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, this is a very truncated verse, but what you need to know is that after they got married, um, we know Isaac was 40, and it is not until 20 years later that they have children. They wait, get this, 20 years to have children. So it's not until Isaac is 60 that this child is born. And we're going to watch Isaac repeat some of the mistakes of his dad, but at least he didn't repeat the Hagar incident. He actually continued to pray and wait upon God. And that's a tough thing to do. I don't know how long you've been praying over something, but have you been praying over something for 20 years? Some of you have. Some of you have been praying for lost family for 20, 30 years. I've heard some stories of people who prayed for someone in their family who didn't know Christ for 30 years, and that person finally became a Christian. It's God's timing. It's, that's all, that all can be a mystery. But, but Isaac has this promise. In fact, he is the son of promise. And if you remember Ishmael at this point in time, how many children did Ishmael have at this point? Remember? Twelve. He had 12 princes, right? And he was not the son of promise. He was the firstborn, but he was not the son of promise. So get this. Imagine if you're Isaac and Rebekah. Everybody's celebrating you. You're the marriage of the century man. The messianic line's coming through you. And you got no kids for two years, four years, five years, seven years, nine years, 11, 15, 17 years. Now, I've read a little bit on, on this, and there's a couple perspectives. One writer I read this week said uh, he doesn't believe that Isaac prayed until the 20-year mark. I don't think so. I think, this is my own conjecture, but I think it's a pretty educated speculation at least, that I think Isaac and Rebecca were praying this whole time. I think they prayed for 20 years because it was an absolute tragedy in that culture not to have children. And to know that you were in the messianic line, to know that you were the son of promise, to hear the stories from your dad and your mom about what God did and how long they waited and how dad was 100 and mom was 90, that's a miracle. And yet there's this barrenness. And I think we have to ask a question as Christians, why does there seem to be barrenness in these very special set-apart women in the Bible? And these are not the only two. 
Later on, we're going to see it happen to Rachel. We're going to see it happen to the mother of Samson. We're going to see it happen in the life of Elizabeth before John the Baptist is born. Why barrenness? Why does God make us wait for promises? Can I get a witness? Why, God? (laughs) I can barely wait 20 minutes. Two minutes for my burrito if I'm in line where they have the clock, right? I get impatient. Can you imagine waiting 20 years? You're standing on a promise, but there's barrenness. Why barrenness? Why does then God all of a sudden answer the prayer? Well, I think one thing that we need to remember is that I think God wanted this line of people to rest assured, to be convinced of the fact that anything that was going to happen was not going to come from human effort. And you know what? If we could pull the veil back for a second as Christians, as believers, God may be doing more of that than we realize. God may be doing things, you know, this in in the prayer life of Isaac, as he prayed for his wife, I'm sure over and over again, and I'm sure you've prayed for things over and over again. God wasn't saying no to Isaac. He was just saying, not yet. Wait. And, you know, it's been said when we pray, sometimes God says yes, sometimes God says no, and sometimes God says wait. Or he says not yet. And Isaac couldn't have known that, and we don't often know that, right? We have no, sometimes we wish there was a little, you know, uh, fine print on the bottom where we could fill in the gaps, but we just don't have it. We just know he waited. She was barren, but then the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And I'm sure that must have been an incredible time of joy. I'm sure they prayed and prayed and prayed, and once they, they understood that she was pregnant and was showing and and so forth, I'm sure that he picked her up and swung her around or, you know, they celebrated and all that stuff. But there's a word that follows the happy times of you're pregnant, wonderful, praise God, he answered our prayer. You sometimes pray for something and then you get it and then you go, why did I pray for that? Well, here it comes. Verse 22 says, but the children struggled together within her. Now, this wasn't just simply the fetal movement of a preborn child that's pretty cool and can be kind of freaky, to be honest. When my wife was pregnant with our three, sometimes I would just lay on her belly and, and she would go, oh, there's kicking things going on. And sometimes you see a, the print of a foot come through her stomach and you're like, wee, wee, this is a horror movie. I don't know. I don't know if I like this. But anyway, but it was pretty cool to see the movements there. But Rebecca, when this stuff was happening and there was a struggle together within her, she said, if it is so, why then am I this way, 22? Or to put it in modern vernacular, what in the world is going on inside me? It seems like there's a wrestling match. You see the word struggle in verse 22? It's ratzat in Hebrew. And the word literally means the children smash themselves inside of her. It's like they were having a fist fight. MMA was happening inside Rebecca. And it wasn't pretty. And and she was like, whoa, this is not just a normal stuff. These kids are inside of me. And apparently, you know how brothers can be, right? Once they're outside of the womb, they can throw blows. Well, apparently they were doing it inside the womb. 
There was a wrestling match going on. The word in Hebrew, if you look it up in the lexicon, ratzat, for struggled, uh, the word could be defined as they were cracking each other in pieces, or it can mean to crush or oppress. There was a lot going on in Rebecca, and she wondered, why am I this way? So finally, I think, and I don't know how long this uh, pause was, but she went to inquire of the Lord. Maybe she shared it with her husband. Nobody seemed to know what was going on. And finally, she inquired of the Lord about the struggle. Henry Morris, in his commentary on Genesis, says these words. There's much we, we do not yet understand concerning the growth of the preborn child. Present-day abortionists seem to feel that an embryo is not really a person until its birth, even though live births can take place any time over a period of several months before and after the normal gestation period. It is true we cannot remember anything connected with our life before birth, but neither do we remember anything for several years after birth. A newborn babe does have feeling, however, and can't exhibit anger, and I've mentioned to you pain in the past as well as contentment. So why should this not also be true for the period prior to birth? It's a mystery. We don't know everything. But you know what? Before about the age of five, I don't know about how good your memory is. I meet some people and they say, yeah, when I was playing in my crib when I was nine months old, I had an airplane and I used to twirl it around. I'm like, what in the world? I can't remember what I had for breakfast, right? But some people remember, sometimes you remember flashes from your childhood, you know, maybe somewhere where you were playing or a face. But I don't know, for most people I talk, seem to talk to at least, you know, about before the age of five, uh, I'm not sure that you remember a whole lot. So I would just recommend to your parents that, you know, don't spend a lot on early birthday parties. They won't remember, unless you take good video. But uh, you know what? I know we want to bless our kids. So, um, Anyway, the struggle. The struggle would be a foretaste of what would happen to these two boys for the rest of their lives. 23 says, the Lord said to her, this is the answer. She says, what's going on in me, Lord? Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. And one, pe one people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. What's going on in me, Lord? The answer comes from God. I don't know how it came. I don't know if it came through a prophecy. I don't know if the Lord kind of spoke to her heart. I don't know exactly the means of it, but she was told, you have two nations inside of you, and they're warring. They're battling. There's two people groups inside of you, and the older is going to serve the younger. In so many cases in the Bible, it's the younger child who becomes the heir, uh, Seth, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Joseph. I mean, these were all the youngest in their families in many cases, and they, they became the heir. They became, they had the rights of the firstborn. And by the way, if you were the firstborn in a family, you had like twice the land and wealth privileges. It was a big deal to be the firstborn. And so when that was taken away, you know, it was a, it was a tragedy for those who were firstborn. And I think this is a reminder that God doesn't do things the way we do them. God doesn't really care about the nature of how we do things. God has his own choice. Many of you have wrestled with these verses. I'll mention them. Romans 9, 10 through 12 says these words. Not only this, but there was Rebecca also, Romans 9, 10 through 12, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born... 
and it had not done anything good or bad. In order that God's purpose according to his choice or God's purpose in election, NIV might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Romans 9 is the classic passage on election, predestination, and it causes a lot of people problems. But you have to remember that God chose Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. God chose Isaac. God chose Jacob, who was the younger to the older would serve him. He renamed him to Israel. God chose everyone in this line. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Read the, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, and you see some surprising names in there. And God chose that whole line. And here's the beauty of how it works. God, you know, uh, predestination is taught in the Bible, and it means that God chose you as well to be his child. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Some, some people wrestle with that. Well, if he chose me, did he not choose other people? Well, I don't believe in double predestination. That's what some extreme Calvinists hold. They believe that God predestines people to heaven and predestines others to hell. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. But there's something called simultaneous election that you need to know about. I'll remind you, if you heard our Romans 9 study, I threw this out to you as kind of the, what I understand is a classical position on predestination and free will, and here's how it works. God does not have to look down a corridor of time and say, he's in, she's in, he's out, she's out. God doesn't look down a corridor of time, he's eternal. So what the classic position holds is what's called simultaneous election. God doesn't look down a corridor of time and select people. God is eternal. The past, present, and future are all before him. So when he wrote a prophecy about Judas, and people get upset with, about the prophecy, Judas, poor Judas. God already said that Jesus would be betrayed by a close friend. Judas really didn't have a choice, did he? Well, Judas did have a choice, and his choice was real, but God could write a prophecy about Judas before he ever existed because God lives in the now. There is no past. There is no present or future for God. It's now. So he could write a prophecy about Judas. Judas could exercise his free will in his lifetime, but God's prophecy could not be thwarted because he already knew what Judas was going to do. Does that mean he... Pulled Judas's arm to do it? No, it just means God already knew it. So it couldn't change. I give the illustration, and I don't have time to give all of this to you tonight, but go back and listen to the Romans 9 study and listen to the first 20 minutes where I go over this. And I, I kind of give you the uh, illustration of uh, having a, a ball game uh, on your, uh, uh, what do you call it? What? It's not a VCR anymore, it's called a DVR. And you hear the final score. And so basically, when you replay that game, no matter how many times you replay that game, the outcome will always be the same. That's how everything is to God. God can't learn anything. Everything is now for God. He's never surprised. He never looks at Michael up in heaven and goes, boy, I didn't see that one coming. God lives in the now because he's eternal. That's what's called simultaneous election. Okay, we're going to pause here for a second. So um, we have a special time of prayer happening right now, and there's 28 churches involved tonight um, praying specifically over what happened in France where the priest was killed, uh, his throat was slit by some ISIS people, 
and they held a worship team hostage. And, um, you know, finally, I think police got involved. And I understand that the people who did this were, were dealt with by the police. But um, we continue to see this happening over and over and over again in our world. I got a text from a young lady that goes to this fellowship, and she said, please be careful, Pastor Michael. And this world's so crazy. And I appreciate that. Uh, but we know that a lot of this is happening elsewhere. It doesn't mean that we don't have stuff happening here. But, you know, wherever the church is persecuted, we don't have to be the same denomination. We don't have to be, you know, agree on everything. But if our brothers or sisters are, are killed or persecuted in another uh, country or whatever, we, we care. In the second half of Genesis 25, we begin to see the story of Isaac taking shape. Isaac... Uh, had a wife named Rebecca, and once again we see the idea of barrenness, that she cannot have a child. But she does get pregnant, and uh, eventually there are twins in her womb, and those twins begin a struggle. And you have Jacob and Esau, and when she inquires to the Lord, what's going on within me? Well, the answer is simply this, that there are two nations in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. And of course, we know Jacob and Esau is Israel and Edom. And this, you know, time in the womb, this struggle in the womb is really indicative of the whole history of Israel, a people that has struggled, a people that has been in constant warfare and battle. And that will be Jacob's life, even with his own brother. This is a foretaste of what's to come, the struggle in the womb. As the chapter fast forwards, of course, we know these two brothers grow up and they're, they're very different men. One man is a hunter and he's a really an outdoorsman and his name is Big Red. He's Esau. He is going to be the father of the Edomites. And the other man is Jacob and his name means conniver or heel catcher, really from the scene of their birth, but really also a description of the man, Jacob. But that man, as we will follow him along from Isaac, to Jacob will be the man who is renamed and his new name becomes Israel. And Israel, I think the best translation means God prevails. And God prevails in life because he is sovereign. But it doesn't mean life won't be a struggle. And you may be in the midst of that struggle right now. And sometimes when we're in the midst, we say, oh God, where are you? But God was in control. He had chosen Jacob for this special purpose by which he would bring forth the, the deliverer, that is the Messiah. When we're going through struggles, we don't always know what the end of it's going to be. We wonder, well, is there some purpose to my struggle? What is God doing? But in the end, God was gonna bring forth one who uh, is the Messiah, the savior of the world. And of course, God would prevail. God will prevail over any situation that we face, any difficulty, any struggle, any question mark in our souls. Even if we don't get it right now, God will prevail. And we uh, need to be governed by God, which is another translation of the name Israel. And we'll be looking at that now as we turn the corner in the book of Genesis. We'll be looking at Jacob's struggle, but what it produces is the beauty of a family that's governed by God. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message again, learn more about our church in Corona, or to access archived messages, go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the church tab. You can follow us on Instagram at livingtruthcorona or download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app on Apple and Android devices. Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry. 
You can partner with us by donating at livingtruthradio.org.